The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Stocks are falling again, with the Nasdaq yet again the worst performer after its worst start to a year since 2016. Is weak data the culprit? Manufacturing activity did contract for the 14th straight month. Job openings came in at their lowest level in nearly three years. But earlier, the Richmond Fed's Barkin left rate hikes on the table, and the 10-year yield was briefly back above 4% again. We'll try to figure out exactly what's ailing this market. Fed minutes also loom top of next hour. And another cargo ship attacked on the Red Sea overnight, bringing the total to 24. Our expert says the U.S. will almost certainly decide to attack Houthi targets in Yemen as fighting across the region intensifies. We'll talk fallout for energy prices and the global supply chain. And we're watching Microsoft getting closer and closer to surpassing Apple's market cap for the first time in a couple of decades. So is tech in trouble or is the leadership just shifting? A top analyst weighs in. Before all that, let's get to Dom Chu, though. He's got the latest on these markets. And we've lost steam throughout the session today, Dom. We have. And we are sitting right there now, though, just in the middle of the trading range, at least for the broad S&P 500, which currently sits at 47.22, down roughly one half of 1%. Again, right in the middle of the trading range so far today. The Dow Industrial is down about one half of 1% as well, 37,569 the last trade there, and the Nasdaq Composite at 14,662, which is, again, as Kelly mentioned, the underperformer on the day, down nearly three-quarters of 1%. Kelly also mentioned some of the Middle East tensions, the Middle East issues happening because of what's happening in the Red Sea, the Suez Canal region. All of that, in addition to U.S. interest in refilling the SPR to a certain degree, 3 million barrels or so, is propelling oil prices for U.S. benchmark West Texas Intermediate, WTI crude's up about 3% now to $72.57. And we're sitting just at about, from these levels, $95 to where we are here, roughly about 24% to the downside. So we'll keep an eye on that move in oil prices and whether they're sustained moving higher in some of those prices. And then the technology trade is fairly thematic with regard to the underperformers today. Enphase and First Solar, the two new energy, renewable energy stocks that are really facing some downside First Solar and relative outperformer after analysts at Mizuho call it their top pick in renewable energy and faces down 6%. Meanwhile, on the semiconductor side, on semi, Skyworks, Corvo, some of its chip names that have been talked about as part of Apple's supply chain, still kind of reeling from that big downgrade from Apple yesterday by analysts over at Barclays. That's having rever- reverberations today. So those chip stocks, among those down nearly 2 to 3%. So keep an eye on solar stocks. And those chip stocks tied to Apple. Kel, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don, thank you very much. Is bad news bad news again for the market? Manufacturing activity and job openings remained at lower levels in the latest data this morning. And we'll get more clarity on the Fed's thinking from that last meeting, which had those dovish rate hike projections when their minutes come out at the top of the hour. Steve Leisman is at the Federal Reserve with more. Steve, what do you make of it all? 
Well, we got the soft landing scenario this morning, Kelly, got a little bit of help from the economic data with a decline in job openings and the quit rate along with the manufacturing report showing easing inflationary pressures. Take a look at the data. The ISM manufacturing, it was up 0.7 to 47.4, but it's the third straight month it's indicated a contracting economy that is below 48. Uh, ISM, the index though, the price index, it declined. And so that's a good measure for the inflation outlook. Job openings, the Fed looking for easing in the labor market did get a little bit 8.79 lowest level since march 21 but still well above the pre-pandemic level of around 6 million the quit rate of 2.2 percent also declined back more towards normal now richard Fed, richard, richmond fed president tom barkin this morning perhaps giving a preview of what those minutes are going to say yes cuts are penciled in but no they're not guaranteed and may not come as quickly or as extensively as markets expect yeah barkin saying a soft landing is increasingly conceivable but not inevitable there's a potential for rate hikes remain on the table and cuts depend on inflation easing about that he said well weaker demand or more fed hikes may be needed to bring down inflation and the recent decline in yields and the rise in the stock market it's going the wrong way. It could stimulate demand. So he's a little bit nervous. Markets unfazed, trading with a 74% probability of a March rate cut. They priced in a quarter point hike at most meetings after that. So the January 25 contract, that's the one we look at for the full year, shows six full cuts baked in with that current yield of 384. That compares to the average Fed official who's baked three rate cuts into their forecast. So like Barkin, most officials have leaned against the market's aggressive pricing, but to little avail the minutes, maybe they'll do, this, they'll do the same and we'll see if it has any impact at all, Kelly. We'll see. Steve, stay with us. So my next guest is in the camp that thinks the Fed won't cut as much as expected this year. Mike England joins us now. He's chief economist at Action Economics. Mike, I mean, it is fairly common for us to hear people saying, no, 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 the Fed's not. I don't know. Maybe maybe we'll continue to be surprised by this disinflationary impulse and they and they will cut in March like Goldman thinks. Why, why are you not in that camp? You know, that certainly is the hope. Uh, if you think back to last year at this time, we ended December of 2022 with a pretty distinct downtrend in inflation and the markets really got excited about that, really didn't follow the, the lead from the Fed. Turns out through seasonal adjustment changes and then some ugly inflation numbers for January and February, by the time we got to March, the downtrend in inflation was still evident, but not nearly as steep as, as seen at the, at the start of the year. Here we're sitting in kind of a similar situation. We are assuming that there's going to be a continued downtrend in inflation, but there's risk in January, for instance, uh, that big uh, minimum wage hikes in quite a few states, like 20 states, are going to be hiking minimum wages. That's going to have an upward impact on the wage data. And if we get some bad luck on the core numbers, we could easily completely quash a lot of this market perception of the stringing of easings. I think the Fed's probably got it right in looking for 75 basis points in cuts. Since they revised their economic outlook four times a year, we assume they'll skip March, which is the next time, and start their cutting uh, sequence in June. Yeah, I, I guess the question then is, um, you know, how the market is likely to react to that. Not that that's what you have to think about one way or the other. Um, but what do you make of the kind of weak trading action to start the year off? And, and Mike, you know what I mean? And the data, I don't know, you could look at it as maybe it was good, maybe it was not so good. 
Well, you know, I think the market really got ahead of itself. If you look at the drop-off in mortgage rates, it started in the third week of, of October. That's when we hit the peak. It's exactly the same as last year. In 2022, mortgage rates peaked in, in the third week of October. This time, they dropped pretty dramatically into year-end. Uh, stock markets rallied quite a bit. I think the market just has gotten ahead of itself. The overall outlook is good. I think the, the prospects for inflation slowing through the year are, are positive. It's just that they're pricing in too aggressive a move, and I think part of the reason why we've backstepped a little at the start of the year, aside from the problems we're seeing in the in the Red Sea and the uptick we've seen in oil prices. Beyond that, I think maybe the market's just catching its breath. I heard Steve, uh, uh, our friend David Kelly, talking today about how, you know, especially if things like auto insurance prices drop, we could be back to 2% uh, on core PCE. Um, but then the, I'm seeing stories this morning about, you know, home insurance rates going up and car insurance rates going up. So maybe that prospect is uh, is you know, uh, maybe that's not going to happen the way people think. Yeah. And, and let me give you, Kelly, a little behind the scenes reporter uh, uh, stories here. Mike and I have been talking over the past several weeks um, about what happened last year. And we've been trying to get the data together to, to show this. But to make the long story short and less complicated than it needs to be, the Fed thought that rate and the market thought that inflation was coming down pretty strongly at the end of last year and the beginning of uh, sorry, the end of 2022 and the beginning of 2023. Um, that was revised away. And plus, we had a little uptick in um, uh, in inflation in the beginning of the year. So it was a bit of what uh, Fed Governor Waller called a head fake. Hmm. Now, Mike has some good reasons that we've been talking about why that may not happen again. But the important point from that is that markets seem to be priced for this linear movement in what is essentially a very volatile nonlinear series. So I'm a little bit concerned about that, that yeah. you could get a pop in the CPI or the PCE, and it may not mean anything uh, in terms of the overall trajectory, but it would be something that could really cause markets, which are all the way on one side, to have to adjust. And we were talking about that a little bit yesterday, Mike. Um, but even if that's true, even if the CPI readings come in sticky for a couple of months' time, do you think anyone would interpret that as a, as a serious problem for the Fed? In other words, do you think they would change their trajectory if the, you know, if the inflation reading is half a point higher than you know, we'd like it to be? You know, I think the Fed is pretty well positioned to stay its course. You know, it's got a 75 basis point uh, cutting path for 2024 and 25, 100 basis points. So basically with each quarterly SEP or revisions to the economic forecast, they can cut. And then another 75 after that. If you look at that broad picture, their forecasts for inflation are actually kind of pessimistic. They plugged in some pretty high uh, inflation numbers, a very gradual reduction. So I think if we do see some back uh, backtracking with the inflation numbers, it's actually already marked in by the Fed into their official outlook. And so I think they actually have a, a pretty solid path here as long as the economy stays strong. Obviously, if the economy starts to weaken more dramatically than we thought, they may want to react to that. But if growth continues, uh, taking a, a slow and careful uh, approach to cutting rates is probably their best path. Do you think, Steve, it's fair to kind of boil this down to the market wants the Fed to do victory cuts, not, not cuts in defeat? That's a great way to put it, Kelly. I hadn't heard that before. I think that's exactly right. Um, uh, in fact, Powell even talked about that uh, at the last press conference when it comes to relative to, to whether the Fed would 
uh, and how it might end uh, quantitative tightening. It depends on what's going on in the economy. I think that that is a definition of a soft landing. It's one of the, the critical ones, that the Fed ends up cutting rates because the economy is relatively strong, um, but that inflation has come down and the restraint is no longer needed. Yeah, that's Dave Zervo's line. It's still his base case uh, that, you know, we, we're cutting like from a, a good place. It's a good one. Gentlemen, we'll leave it there. Thank you both, Steve. We'll see you next hour for the minutes. Our Steve Leisman and Action Economics Thanks. Mike England. Meanwhile, more cross-border fighting in the Middle East, pushing oil prices higher today and spurring OPEC Plus to announce a monitoring meeting on the 1st of February. This follows Iranian reports of explosions at an event honoring one of its generals killed four years ago in a U.S. airstrike. State media reporting at least 103 people have been killed, calling it a terrorism attack. Lebanon's Hezbollah and Russia's Putin both condemning the incident, with Putin sending condolences to Iran. On top of all of it, Iran-backed Houthis attacked a 24th container ship on the Red Sea overnight. And my next guest says the U.S. will very likely decide to attack Houthi targets in Yemen in the next week or two. Here now is Amrita Sen. She's founder and director of research at Energy Aspects. And Amrita, welcome. Put that into context for us. How would the energy markets take it if those strikes do happen? Look, I think so far as well, we've seen that with both the Red Sea and just generally geopolitics, we haven't seen prices react much, in part because fundamentals are softer uh, for crude right now. We've seen some inventory builds towards year end, and that's why the market just isn't sensitive to this. Um, even if there are attacks, we're not expecting any oil supply losses on the back of it. And I think the market is going to really look for specific uh, supply disruptions that actually helps tighten balances before we see a significant increase in prices. And to that point, I guess the larger question is what it would signify for the Middle East more broadly. Um, so we've seen this escalating tension even as the oil prices remained relatively calm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think you could argue that, you know, our oil prices just not reflecting uh, some form of geopolitical risk premium. I mean, it isn't right now. Um, and is that fair? I think the challenge we have right now is that crude demand seasonally is weaker uh, because refineries undergo maintenance at this time. Uh, product markets are tighter. And I think that's kind of where the imbalance is uh, right now. But what we are um, likely to see, and once you kind of start to realize that inventories are still relatively low, uh, especially versus this time last year. And if we start to get supply disruptions, then you are going to get the markets kind of paying more attention to these attacks in the Middle East. And you've already seen a lot of ships divert. Um, it just means you're going to tie up shipping on much, much longer routes, which ultimately means Asia has to pay a higher price, consumers mm. there. Um, and it does affect inflation overall. Yeah, another headwind for China, perhaps, uh, or for the region. I'm curious, so if, if it's the case, as I saw an analyst put it earlier today, that the Houthis rule the Red Sea right now, what more is the international community going to have to do to get a passage back and normalize supply chains and, and help with oil prices and all the rest of it? Well, I think it's a great question because we just haven't seen, even with U.S. carriers attacking and destroying some of these Houthi uh, ships, that the counterattack or rather the attacks from the Houthis have stopped. If anything, they continue as well. So I'm not ex expecting a de-escalation uh, in the Red Sea anytime soon. And I think that's where the real risk lies, is that right now the market's quite complacent to things. It has a lot of inventories, but these things don't take a lot of time to turn. And if you do get any kind of disruption, which is already called 
causing quite a bit of diversion for uh, these ships. Um, we're just going to need prices to go up even further to actually reflect what then would mean a pretty significant tightening in balances. Again, I'm not saying it's happening right now, but there is a risk that that does happen. And in fact, there was just a joint statement put out by the UK and 11 other countries saying we call for the immediate end of illegal Houthi attacks against commercial vessels transiting yes. the Red Sea and the release of unlawfully detained vessels and crews, saying if saying the Houthis will bear the responsibility of the consequences should they continue to threaten lives, the global economy, and free flow of commerce in the region's critical waterways. This is an extremely strongly worded yeah. statement, but statements aren't going to amount to much. No, and exactly. And the point is that we have seen some of these Houthi uh, carriers or uh, boats being destroyed, and that hasn't deterred them whatsoever. And if anything, it, we are seeing continued attacks on um, vessels that do con uh, that are still going through the Red Sea. If anything, I think what you're going to see is more and more Western companies just saying, look, yes, we have to eat the cost, but we are just not willing to send our ships through that route. I think that is the real outcome right now, unless and until you see a, either a de-escalation or one way or the other, you know, this kind of situation getting sorted out. And if it's correct to sort of substitute Iran every time we see the word Houthi, if that's where the funding is coming from and, and perhaps the direction of activities, then is the U.S. at some point going to respond to all of this provocation by levying more sanctions on Iran and affecting its oil output in a way that could uh, maybe have a bigger impact on the price of energy? That's a great question. And I think one of the challenges uh, the U.S. faces right now is that the bulk of Iranian oil, illegally, of course, is going to only one country, which is China. The companies that are buying this Iranian oil are actually not even a part of what I would call the global financial system. They don't transact in U.S. dollars. So so what if you sanction them? It doesn't really affect them. I think it's fair to say that the U.S. administration had turned a blind eye towards Iran raising exports last year. That's why Iran managed to raise exports by about six, seven hundred thousand barrels per day. So even if you were to see a significant tightening and the U.S. actually says no, you know, companies in, uh, that are popping up in the UAE, shell companies, uh, helping to sell these uh, Iranian oil. Maybe those, you do get a clamp down on that. But beyond that six, 700,000 barrels per day, Iran will continue to sell uh, the oil to China because the companies just don't care about sanctions uh, at this stage. That's fascinating. It suggests then the U.S. might have to use some leverage if it has so such on China or offer them some mm -hmm. other opportunity uh, you know, out there, you think, to Russia and so forth. Um, just yeah. a quick final comment on the fact, you know, Russia did come out with this statement in support of Iran. And, you know, we uh, we see this con continuing widening of this Middle East uh, situation. What does the fact that they came out in support of Iran after the explosions tell you might really be going on behind the scenes in terms of what bigger shape this may take in the coming months? Well, I think I wouldn't read too much into it because, I mean, Russia, again, interestingly, has always straddled this, right? They've always supported Iran on some issues, but especially given uh, the war in Ukraine, they also don't have a lot of friends and they have uh, very strong allies in Saudi Arabia and uh, UAE when it comes to at least, you know, OPEC plus. They're a part of that. Um, and that is just simply not going to change regardless of their support for Iran. And Russia has played this role uh, for several years now where they are actually uh, supportive of kind of both. You've seen the relationships with the GCC, but also politically with Iran. And finally, Amrita, before we let you go, there's been speculation that it will be Saudi Arabia who ultimately capitulates, uh, maybe allows for more of their barrels to come on the market, takes the lower price, but guards their market share, uh, while others suggest they can't do so. They're running a budget deficit. They need a higher oil price for some of their, you know, Vision 2030 goals. What's your expectation on that front? 
I would just say, look, Saudi Arabia is a revenue optimizer. Uh, they will continue to look at markets and say, look, if we continue to cut production and um, keep the prices at a stable level, are we better off on a revenue basis rather than flooding the market and letting prices down but increasing exports? So they continue to revenue optimize. And we, have, we continue to believe that Prince Abdulaziz will keep the market stable. Uh, he has enacted additional cuts uh, through Q1, and I don't expect them to come back overnight, even if they gradually start coming back in Q2. But they probably will get extended because the focus very much is stability in oil prices and making sure inventories don't build. All right. I'm Rita Sen. Thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time. Thank you. From Energy Aspects. Coming up, we're officially two years removed from the S&P 500's record close, and we've climbed nearly all the way back up. We're less than 100 points away from that level now. My next guest is looking for opportunity in the catch-up trade. He'll tell us where that is next. Plus, we've got two weeks' worth of mortgage application data to dig through. Did the year-end drop in rates push home buyers to take the plunge? And could we see a mini-wave of refis? That's ahead. As we head to break, here's a glance at the markets. The Dow's down 130 points today. It's off the session lows, but it's still red, and the S&P 500 is down almost half a percent. The Nasdaq, the laggard, down three-quarters of one percent. The 10-year yield, briefly over four percent earlier, now at 3.927. We're back in a moment. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The S&P 500 is nearly on the cusp of taking out its record high from two years ago. But my next guest says it's time to start buying the beaten down parts of the market. Let's dive in further with David Bonson. He's CIO of the Bonson Group. David, so far the market's in your mood the last couple of days, don't you think? Don't you think? Welcome. Yes. Uh, Happy New Year, Kelly. It does seem as if the start of 2024 feels more like 2022 than 23. Of course, it's only a couple of days, but uh, obviously those big momentum names in the NASDAQ are facing a valuation wall. They're just extremely expensive and many names can execute really, really well from here and yet already have it priced in where I do think some of the defensives in 2023 that were still up in many cases, some of the utility names may not have been, but they weren't up that much. They didn't get overstretched. I think 24 is going to produce some of those opportunities. So in to, before we kind of dive into those opportunities, does that mean the Magnificent Seven that they're not part of your portfolio? Because even though I take everybody's point about the size of the companies and the performance this year, on a two-year basis, it's not that spectacular. And on a PE basis, some of them are, you know, 30x. It's not, you know, crazy. 
Oh, uh, 30x would be the cheap ones. I mean, <laughs> some of them are 100x and, and 50x. I mean, as a group, they're 55x wow. evenly weighted among Isn't the seven. Isn't that Amazon, right? though, just, largely Amazon? Because even NVIDIA is at, what, 30, Microsoft 30, Apple probably, I don't know, 20-something. Yeah, and again, some of it is if you're looking forward versus trailing, that makes a huge difference too. Um, I think the idea with some of them is absurd that they can hold their margins and get some of the revenue growth that's projected. And so you have a lot of issues with that. But you're, you make a great point about the two-year view. You had such an incredible performance in 2023 for some of them. Let's take NVIDIA out. A lot of the rest of them are a negative return or even returns. You recall like a group like Netflix, which isn't the Magnificent Seven, but the old FANG nomenclature. Mm -hmm. It gave back 10 years of returns in 2022 in like six months. Wow. I mean, these wow. things are capable of falling very quickly. So, and perhaps you're kind of hinting we could see that happen again. I mean, certainly the places you're looking, do you expect big gains out of them or are they just ways to stay defensive? No, I mean, what it is for us is a permanent philosophy of investing, Kelly. I believed it in 22 as well. Dividend growth was up about 6 or 7% when the S&P was down 20. Dividend growth was not up as much as the market in 2023, but it still had a mid-teens uh, performance, which most people would take any year. And on a two-year basis is beating the S&P by over 10%. And so you made a really good point before the break. We're not back to our high with the S&P. As great as 2023 was, based on 22, investors still haven't got back to that level they were two years ago. That's the market I think we're gonna be in for years. Big years up, a few years down, but range bound. And the problem, the reason I believe that is because of valuations. You just simply cannot get the earnings growth to get double digit returns compounded for the next 10 years mm -hmm. with a market starting at 20 times earnings. But see, now you're making us nervous again because for the new year, you know, we have to fund some 529s and things like that. And in the back of our mind, we're like, please let this not be the year that the market tops out for the next five or 10. But then, you know, you, you'll feel like that might always be the case. And one of the frustrations I have is that the, you want to make that consideration on a rational basis, not with the Fed hanging over your shoulder. Mm -hmm. And there's been this wall of when the Fed would stop tightening. Investors dealt with that all of 23, and they felt like they got that pal pivot at the November meeting. And I most certainly agree with consensus that you're going to see rate cuts in 23. And I don't really care if it's 100 basis points or 200 basis points. Mm -hmm. It's going to likely be somewhere in between there. But fundamentally, you just have earnings projections that are really optimistic, and you're doing that at a starting point of a high valuation. I'm a child of the late 90s, early 2000s, beginning my professional investing career. I saw incredible companies that have performed magnificently for 25 years that never got back to those levels that they were. Cisco, Intel, some of those great examples. Right. Because if people entered into high valuation, you just couldn't recover. You know, this is not help. What am I going to do? Buy bond? They, they give you four options in these investment accounts. Like you can do the S&P. You can do some, you know, bond fund. There's not a lot out there. I can't go buy American Electric Power, Clorox, and Gilead like you're recommending. 
Well, of course, uh, individual portfolios like the ones we manage, this is the part where I get to talk my book. That's where you can do it. You're right. In some of these target date funds and 401ks or packaged 529s, they don't have that option. A lot of 529s do offer some form of an active, maybe a value yeah, fund. But I that mean, that's makes me one nervous. way to mitigate the risk is at least to be value biased versus growth. I, I know. But, the, you know, the fee structure and the, the performance, I don't know who the fund manager is. And then I got to go look at it. It just feels, you know, it's nerve wracking. But, but to your point, so when you put these portfolios together, you're not doing sector selection. This is all stock by stock. Yeah, we're individual stock buyers, and it ends up with the sector allocation. I mean, you mentioned American Electric Power is one of the names I presented today. It's a utility name that we think is best to breed. Big dividend, big dividend growth. It's the only utility name we own, though. I'm not trying to go get the utility sector. I'm trying to get American Electric Power, which I think fell last year because utilities were down 7%, but it's a name that belongs higher. It's underpriced and a great dividend growth. All right, David, we'll leave it there. Thanks for the wisdom, although now you're making me nervous again, like I said, but I appreciate it very much today. It's good to see you. Thanks, Kevin. David Bonson of the Bonson Group. Coming up, Disney eked out a 4% gain in 2023 to narrowly avoid its longest annual losing streak in over two decades. But the proxy battle that loomed over the stock last year is back in the spotlight. We'll bring you the latest and what it could mean for Iger's legacy with shares now negative since his return as CEO. The exchange is back after this. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. I'm Tyler Matheson with your CNBC News update. In the latest prisoner exchange since the war started, more than 200 Ukrainian and Russian POWs returned to their home countries today. The deal was reportedly brokered by the United Arab Emirates, which has kept close ties with Moscow since the Russian invasion began. Prisoner swaps aren't new, but have slowed recently. The last exchange happened way back in August. At least four state capitals complexes were evacuated because of bomb threats earlier today. The state capitals of Georgia, Kentucky and Michigan, as well as Mississippi, were targeted. But authorities say no dangerous items were immediately found. Investigations into the threats are ongoing. It is the latest in a pattern of threats made against state capitals this week. And meet the newest breed to be recognized by the American Kennel Club. Known for its smile. Yes, its smile. There it is. It's smiling right now. This Lancashire healer is now eligible for thousands of dog shows, including the Westminster Kennel Club show, the granddaddy of them all in the U.S. According to the Kennel Club, they're known to be, quote, courageous, happy and affectionate. Owners say the healers sometimes pull back their lips into a smile when they're content, <laughs> Kelly. Just like me. Ah, now we just need a new, you know, Dogecoin, a crypto yeah, uh, named after healer it. Dogecoin. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a dog coin, Doge. Okay, see you in a half hour. Tyler, no. thanks. Bye. Coming up, the home builders are having their worst day since October after a historic run to end the year. The ITB home construction ETF down a percent and a half today as mortgage rates rebound from their lows last week. After the break, we'll see whether last month's drop was enough to get buyers back into the market. And as we head to break, take a look at some of the healthcare names hitting all-time highs today to the discussion we were just having with David Bonson. You've got Amgen, McKesson, Regeneron, and Vertex, which is now red. All hitting 52-week highs along with the healthcare sector spider ETF, the XLV. It is less than 4% away from its record intraday high. The exchange is back after this. 
Welcome back to the exchange. Lower mortgage rates, not enough to spark demand at the end of the year, but refis were a different story. Let's get the latest with Diana Olick. Diana, what do we find out? Well, Kelly, the drop in mortgage rates during December seems to have had very little effect on home buyers, but a little help to current home owners. So the average rate on the 30-year fixed ended the year at 6.76%, lower than where it was two weeks ago, higher than where it was a week ago, but still well below that 8% high we saw in mid-October. As a result, total mortgage application volume ended the year 9.4% lower than it was two weeks ago, and that is seasonally adjusted. Now, because the numbers for the two weeks are kind of messy, I'm going to give you year-over-year comparisons. Applications to refinance a home loan ended the year 15% higher than a year ago. Applications for a mortgage to buy a home ended the year 12% lower. So those who can benefit from a refi, and there's very few of them, but those who can are clearly trying to get in while they can. Home buyers, though, are still contending with very little supply and very high and rising home prices. Now, mortgage rates started this week higher after also edging up Friday and again today. So we're now at the highest level in more than two weeks, still in the 6% range. But that is probably why the home builders are not so happy, Kelly. Well, exactly. And it doesn't take much uh, to move them one way or the other right now. Diana, stay right there with mortgage demand lower. Our next guest says it should rebound as affordability improves this year. Let's bring in Andy Walden. He's vice president of enterprise research at ICE. Andy, it's good to see you again. Am I, am I saying that correctly? You do actually expect things, you know, affordability to get better, buying demand to pick up? Yeah, I think gradually as we move throughout 2024, if you look at the interest rate forecast, therefore rates to come down about a half a percent throughout 2024 should give buyers about five to six percent more buying power and should improve demand. And I mean, it's really hard to take too much away from the the couple holiday weeks there. But if you look from October when Diana was mentioning rates got up near eight percent through the end of the year, we have seen demand rebound a little bit gradually. And roughly, if you adjust for kind of week to week comparisons, we're at a similar level to where we were back in May. The last time interest rates were at six and a half to six and three quarter percent. So borrowers very much behaving like you would expect them to behave in a mid to high six percent rate environment. One thing I always think about, though, and maybe you have the da- data handy, Andy, or Diana does, but is there's so many more either cash buyers or, you know, people who to whom this is not the swing factor. And, and again, you wonder how much that has played a role in the way the whole economy has responded to rate hikes. Yeah, I mean, certainly you're seeing more of that. Now, you're seeing cash buyers even back out a little bit, but they're certainly making up a larger share of the market just because of the compression you're seeing in mortgage demand out there. So a little bit more cash-dominant world than we've been in in the past, but you're seeing some compression in demand across the board. Yeah. Diana, what would you add to that? Well, I think it's going to be all about supply, because when you say rates are coming down a little bit, maybe half a percentage point, do we get into the high fives at some point? It really depends on the supply. And will the seller, you know, we've talked about this so much today with these mortgage numbers, will the sellers finally decide that they're willing to trade their 3% or lower rate up to a 6% low-ish rate in order to get into the market and put more inventory on there. That's the only way we're going to see affordability. But, Andy, I don't see that really happening unless rates came considerably lower, which that's not really in the forecast. Yeah, and we we haven't seen that last year. I think that was kind of the thought process we moved into the 2023 home buying season. Falling rates should improve inventory and sellers' willingness to sell. We haven't seen sellers move with rates at all. You certainly see a very linear reaction from buyers. They react as you'd expect to rates. 
I haven't seen any signs of sellers moving with rates getting down into the 6% range last year. So maybe if we get in the fives, that changes. Maybe this year's different. We just haven't seen that actually play out in the numbers just yet. Uh, Diana, last word. Well, I, again, I think it's going to depend on that. I also wonder if falling rents aren't going to help a little bit, because if we see perhaps downsizing baby boomers or people who don't need to buy another home might consider selling at the top of the market and getting into a rental because rents are coming down a bit. Maybe that helps the market a tiny bit, but if, yeah. I'm looking for the, the silver lining, Kelly. <laughs> Aren't we all? Diana and Andy, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. Our Diana Olick and Andy Walden. Coming up, Bob Iger scoring a point against Tryon in the ongoing battle for Disney board seats. But with the deadline for those nominations closing tomorrow, could Nelson Peltz fire one last salvo? We'll talk about that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Disney higher about a percent now, despite what's being seen as a vote of confidence for CEO Bob Iger and the board from a key activist investor. Let's get out to Julia Borson with the very latest here. Julia? Hey, Kelly, that's right. Disney announced an agreement with activist hedge fund Value Act to advise it on strategy and Value Act will support Disney's slate of, of board of directors at its annual meeting. Disney CEO Bob Iger is saying, quote, Value Act Capital has a track record of collaboration and cooperation with the companies it invests in. Now, Value Act owns about 5 million shares in Disney. That's according to sources close to the situation. This helps Disney defend against Tryon, which votes nearly 33 million shares including about 25 million shares owned by formal, former Marvel Entertainment chief Ike Perlmutter. Tryon saying Disney's agreement with Value Act does not change its approach to this proxy battle. Now, analyst Gordon Haskett weighing in today saying that this gives Disney an important backer and it will, quote, put this endorsement to work while it campaigns for votes ahead of its annual meeting. All of this comes after Tryon last month nominated Pelts and former Disney CFO Jay Rizzullo to Disney's board. Back in November, Disney named two high-profile new board members, former Morgan Stanley CEO James Gorman, who has had experience with proxy fights as well as succession planning, as well as Sir Jeremy Derrick. He's former head of Sky Media. Now, there's another activist firm which says it supports Iger Blackwells, which owns just about 55,000 shares and nominated three of its own directors to the company's board. Tryon saying it, quote, welcomes other shareholders attempting to fix this iconic but wayward company. But Kelly is certainly uh, very strategic uh, here for Disney to align with Value Act. And again, I, I, I was thinking about it just as Jeff Ubbin has wound down his other new firm, um, thinking about some of the success that they've had there in the past. Anyway, I wanted to ask you about kind of um, to the point about which way Disney should go. We got this data point about how Universal overtook Disney as the highest grossing studio in the box office last year, Julia. And it really does speak to the decline Disney's experienced at the box office. It was, you know, they didn't have uh, one of the top three movies for the first time in a long time. First time since 2014. Uh, none of Disney's movies crossed the billion-dollar benchmark. You know, so there are, there are real challenges here. Yeah, I mean, look, there have been a, a bunch of movies that are scheduled for this year, some big Marvel movies. So there's some expectation that the box office will be strong this year, in part because of those Disney franchise films. There are concerns about superhero fatigue, franchise fatigue in general. But I also think the question with Disney is whether audiences became accustomed to watch first-run Disney movies at home 
because of some of the programming decisions during the pandemic, programming decisions um, made by Bob Chapek, uh, Bob Iger's predecessor. So I think the, the question now is really getting the content um, that's going to get people out to audience, get audiences out to theaters in the same way that Barbie and Oppenheimer did this summer. Of course, Oppenheimer being one of those big universal films that helped with its box office totals. But this is something that Bob Iger has said is a key focus of his. And he said that this is, you know, an area he's really going to be focused to make sure that the films are the kinds of blockbusters that they've traditionally had. Yeah. And there was also some acknowledgement of the fact that maybe some of Disney's films this year, like Marvel, suffered because of the fact that they were being produced in part during the pandemic. I mean, there are some out there like Barton Crockett, as you know, who still say, you know, maybe a, a breakup is the way to go. So the, the fact that that's even, um, you know, not considered implausible, I think, tells us a lot about the struggles with the, that division or whether it makes sense to keep it with Parks and all the rest of it. In any case, they've got a lot of work cut out for them. That's for sure. We'll see at the next 24 hours. Yeah, but I would just say, I, I would just say uh, Kelly, that the, the the movie studio has always been seen as an engine for the rest of the of the whole company. So the characters and franchises developed for the for the film slate for the movies are then exploited across the different platforms, not just Disney Plus, but also the theme parks. Think how intricately intertwined those businesses are. You go to the yeah. theme parks to see the characters that you saw on the big screen. No, it's true, and it's all the more reason why they kind of have to sort out their box office woes uh, as soon as they sort out the board woes. I guess. Yes. Julia, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. Julia Borston following that story. Coming up, shares of this small cap tech name are up 55% over the past year, and several firms see more room to run, naming it a top pick for 2024. But with the NASDAQ under pressure, are growthier names in jeopardy? We'll discuss that with an investor and a top analyst next. Welcome back. Shares of Apple are lower again today, now down more than 4% since Barclays downgraded the stock to underweight yesterday. And that's helping Microsoft edge closer to overtaking Apple's market cap for the first time in decades. You can see about 100 billion shy right now. And that bearish call also dragging down Apple's ecosystem. AMD among the hardest hit, down more than 8% over the past two days. Taiwan Semi down 4 And that translated into the worst first day of the year for the Nasdaq since 2016. But our next guest both see opportunity in technology, if you know where to look. Joining me now is Nancy Tangler, CEO of Laffer Tangler Investments, and Mark Mahaney, Evercore ISI's head of internet research. Welcome to you both. Maybe, I mean, I don't want to totally, well, Mark, let me start on the kind of the big picture theme here, and, and maybe, Nancy, I'll, I'll ask you both. Uh, if this is just a change in leadership, is, is Microsoft the new Apple? And Nancy, I'll, I'll put this to you first. You know, for a couple of years, Apple has literally kind of been the stock market. As it goes, so goes everyone else here. Is that changing now? Well, I, I mean, don't underestimate Apple. I understand that growth is slowing. But one of the things I think the market is missing is that the company has announced $100 billion in share buybacks. And it, and the Magnificent Seven alone has announced 190. Apple's 100 of that. So that puts a floor under the stock price. But that said, we took it out of our 12 best ideas portfolio about two years ago. We still own a small piece of it. And we, did, we do own Microsoft in our 12 best ideas portfolio. And the last thing I'll say about that is I think Mark and I both were investing during the 90s. We think this market is analogous to that market. And at that time, at the end of the decade, the four horsemen were trading at ridiculous valuations at peak earnings. For Microsoft, it was 51 times 
peak earnings, and it's trading at about 30 not peak earnings today. So I think there's plenty of opportunity. It's a much more robust company with a lot of levers to pull and a lot of monetization still to come in AI. Mark, do you want to speak to that? Because this is now the second time, actually, this analogy to the 90s and 2000s has come up. But when David Bonson used it earlier this hour, he used it in a negative way, meaning, you know, that he saw that as, yes, that was the peak. Well, I think Nancy has a better memory than I do, and I'll also <laughs> defer to her in terms of uh, Microsoft and uh, Apple. I would hope that one mar- uh, stock doesn't move the market. And the Magnificent Seven, yes, I would hope the market moves are broader than that. To me, the take on the Magnificent Seven was last year, we, after a, a pretty severe uh, 18-month route in tech and growth stocks, you had the seven, seven highest quality tech stocks lead us out of that. Well, of course you'd want that. You want the most speculative stocks to lead us out? No, you want the highest quality, and that's what we had. Now I think we'll get into, and as we have for the last two or three months, kind of a diffusion in the stocks that outperform. So I think that creates some new opportunities. Doesn't mean some of those Magnificent Seven can't continue to work. Amazon and Meta, for example, are two of my favorite longs still for 2024. Amazon and Meta are. I think we showed Pinterest going into the break. What are your thoughts there? Well, Pinterest is our, is our top smid cap long. So this is part mm. of the diffusion trade. I think Pinterest under new management, and it's been about 18 months under new management, it takes time to turn these ships. But under new management, I think it's improved tools for advertisers with they, things they call mobile deep links and direct links. But the return on ad spend for marketers who are working with Pinterest has been rising. The CMO of Walmart talked about a 15x increase in return on ad spend with Pinterest. And then they've got this partnership with Amazon that's really going live now. And I think that's big enough uh, to cause that growth rate to jump up a couple of points. So I think it's a clear revenue growth acceleration story into this year with much greater cost discipline than they've had in the past. So you're going to have real nice accelerating earnings growth this year, too. It's one of the reasons why it's our top long in Smidcap. All right. And Nancy, just to go back to kind of what's going on with, with Apple and so forth, I mean, maybe some would make the case that Apple's growth is peaking, uh, but I don't think they make that case for Microsoft. It would be hard to, right, given everything going on with the AI cycle. Yeah, I mean, and, and thank you, Mark, for saying I have a better memory instead of that I'm just a lot older than you. Um, uh, yeah, I think the total, we know the total addressable market is an estimate, but it seems like um, some of the numbers from uh, Fortune Business Insight is is that we're going to see 45% compounded annual growth rate in generative AI spending through 2030. Uh, if you look at cloud computing, that's not over yet either. The total addressable market there being something like a trillion and about 51% of all IT spend going into cloud computing. So if you step back and you say labor shortage, which we still have, um, we have a a productivity improvement that we've seen much like we did in the 90s. I think you can draw an analogy as I did and say, look, we can coexist. Tech stocks can go up with higher interest rates uh, as they did in the 90s, as long as we're seeing improvements in productivity. So we're going to use this weakness as we did in the fall of 2020 to add to some of the names. We don't own all of the Magnificent Seven like Mark uh, suggested. But we do like names like uh, Broadcom, which we call Poor Man's NVIDIA, Mm -hmm. or Amazon is one of our top picks as well. Uh, Andy Jassy got Tim Cooked when he took over. (laughs) And 
Tim Cook, by the way, since he took over, Apple's up 1,600%. It's a free cash flow story, Amazon, that is. And it, and by 2026, they'll be generating $100 billion in free cash flow. That's after wow. spending $50 billion on CapEx. So I'll be patient, and we'll be stepping in. Our other favorite name is ServiceNow. Uh, and those are all run by excellent yeah. CEOs, and we think that's critical. And Mark, meanwhile, we have to go, but I love how you talk about the internet, Mag7. So Duolingo, Meta, Uber, Spot, Roku, Shop, Dash. Those were names that had a monster 2023 and maybe uh, can continue to outperform. We'll leave it there. Thank you both. We appreciate it. Thank you, uh, Kelly. Tech's not in turmoil after all, it seems. Nancy Tangler, Mark Mahaney uh, with the Dow down 170 points. That does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This is BVK for Ocean City Tourism, OCMD Streaming Audio. On March 11th, 2024, the title of the spot is STSA Leisure Summer. This is a 30-second composite stereo streaming audio mix. Get away with friends to the laid-back Maryland coast, where you can catch up while casting off and hang 10 while hanging out, where a day on board is never boring and full throttle is half the fun, where you can sink a putt raise a glass, and there's always room for one more round. Ocean City, Maryland. Somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com.